0: Good morning, my name is Russell Brown, and I serve on the Elder Council here at FBC. and today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Luke 9:18 through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it.
1: Luke chapter 9, you can make your way in your copy of Scripture, if you'd like. The ushers tell me they found a cell phone. If you don't have your cell phone, I gave instructions when told about the found, lost cell phone. I said, send strange texts to all their contacts. So they're busy back there sending who knows what to everybody on your phone, and you're going to have a lot of splaining to do uh, after the service. No, I, they're not really sending uh, cryptic text. They're very clear. No, it's terrible. <laughs> if you don't have your phone, um, the ushers the ushers might have it. Uh, you can collect that after the service. Luke chapter Uh, 9 verses 18 through 27, let's ask Jesus for help as we look at his word this morning. Uh, God, we thank you for your kindness to us, that you died for us, that you sent your spirit to give us the power to live a life that brings you glory. We thank you for your grace that you show us new every single day, and we thank you for the hope that we have knowing that a day will come when we will see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. The journey of Jesus. Jesus is going somewhere. Now, if you ask somebody where they're going, you learn a little bit about them with two pieces of information. You say, hey, where are you going this summer? And someone says, we're going to South Dakota. We want to see Mount Rushmore. And you say, how are you getting there? Say, oh, we're going to drive. We want to see the country between here and there. And you'll say, well, once you make that drive, you'll discover why people fly there. No, I'm kidding. There's lots to see between here and there. There's Montana and Yellowstone and John Day, I guess, is on your way there. It's a big stop for a lot of people. Uh, So you ask another person, where are you going? I'm going to Mount Rushmore. How are you getting there? Well, we're going to fly into Rapid City. We'll drive there. And then after we see Mount Rushmore, we're going to make our way by airplane to Chicago. We're going to see a show. Okay, so both people are taking a similar trip, but you learn something about them. You learn something about what they're interested in in terms of where they're going and something about what they're interested in in terms of how they're going to get there. One one person values the road trip, the the driving and the seeing and the stopping and all that of the road trip. The other person values, for whatever reason, just the destination, and the destination itself is just the stopover, Well, Mount Rushmore is just the warm-up act for the show we want to see in the city of Chicago. And Jesus here, as he starts to outline in this passage the journey he's on, wants us to learn something about who he is, both because of the destination he has and the route he's taking to get there. And he wants the disciples and us, as we discover where he's headed and the manner in which he's going to get there, we're supposed to discover something about him. I don't want to give away the ending. Where is he headed? To the cross. How is he getting there? Suffering. That's the route and the destination. And this is something that for the disciples was totally unexpected. The journey of Jesus was unexpected. Maybe you've had this happen to you. You go into the doctor because maybe your ankle or your hip or your knee is hurting a little bit. And you say, uh, you go in and and you want him to give you a, a, a shot or maybe give you a prescription that will make the pain stop. That's the goal. Here's what I want, the pain to no longer be there. And you go into the doctor and he says, well, sure, I can give you a shot. I can give you a prescription for a little bit of a muscle relaxer or something. But what you actually need is surgery to fix the damage. And we say, no, 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 I don't want any of that action. I want it to stop hurting now. And and what he's giving you is the solution to the problem that's unexpected, and it's not what we want. I want you to write something on a piece of paper that I know when I wake up in the morning it won't hurt anymore. And when he gives us information we don't want to hear, well, I can solve the problem, but it's going to be uh, hurt more before it solves it. We don't want to hear that. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is coming to his disciples, and he's saying, "Uh, what do you want from me? And the disciples say, well, we're looking for a Messiah. And now what he's going to do is seek to disentangle their expectations of what Messiah is with who the Messiah actually is. So he's going to come to them and say, who am I? And they're going to say, you're the Messiah. And now he says, I've got to remove all of the baggage from what you think the Messiah is. The the journey that Jesus was on is going to show what kind of Messiah he is, and it's totally unexpected. Look at verse 18. Now, it happened that Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked, who do the crowd say that I am? Now, let's not be too hard on the disciples, because this is a little bit of a strange verse. Jesus was praying alone, and the disciples were with him. We might wonder, why weren't the disciples praying with him? I mean, they're all sitting there, and Jesus is praying by himself. If this was a major problem, Luke probably would have brought it up, and Jesus certainly would have. He wasn't somebody that normally had a filter. So it doesn't seem like this was a problem. Jesus was praying. The disciples were with him. This would have been customary in a rabbi relationship. They would have been observing how he prays, that they might also understand uh, how to pray. And Jesus initiates a conversation with the disciples, and he says, Who do the crowds say that I am? And so he's seeking from them information about what the crowds might imagine Jesus is like. And so they answer this way. Verse 19. They answered, John the Baptist, others say, Elijah, and others, the one, uh, that one of the prophets of old has risen. So Jesus asks them, who do the crowds think I am? So clearly the disciples have talked to the crowds. They had some information on the topic. They had been talking with people. Who do you think Jesus is? Well, we think he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. We think he's Elijah, raised from the dead. We think he's one of the Old Testament prophets, raised from the dead and so jesus wants the disciples to crowdsource their information about him how does that work not great they're not not great at it but and and what we discover from the crowd's answer is what they expected of jesus that the fact that they thought he was john the baptist or maybe elijah or maybe a prophet of old risen from the dead tells us what they expected about Jesus Deuteronomy 18 15 Moses writes this the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you will listen so Moses here is telling the people of Israel someday another prophet like me is going to come along be sure to listen to him and because of this verse in Deuteronomy 18 The expectation was when the Messiah came, he would be a prophet of old. So when the Messiah showed up, he would be like one of the old prophets, if not one of the actual old prophets, and that would mean the end is near, and he would be like Moses. So what did Moses do for the people of Israel? Did anybody go to Sunday school and see the flannel graphs? Moses. This was incredible. Moses was the one who showed up on the scene when they were being oppressed by the Egyptian people. And it was Moses who did these profound miracles through the power of God to bring all the plagues onto Egypt. It was Moses who was there when the Red Sea was parted, and they walked through. And it was Moses who was there when the manna showed up every single day. And when they didn't have any water, they would get water out of a rock. And it was Moses. He was the one who delivered them from slavery and delivered them to the doorstep of the promised land. And the Messiah is going to be like Moses. So now we have Jesus. And who do they think he is? Well, maybe he's John the Baptist, who was an Old Testament prophet, many assumed. Maybe he's Elijah, raised from the dead. Or maybe he's one of the other Old Testament prophets, the prophet Moses had talked about. Well, if Jesus is that, well, what is Moses like? What would Moses do? It was a bracelet they would wear. If he was living in first century Israel with the Romans in charge, what would Moses do? Oh, he wouldn't do 10 plagues. He'd do 20. It's next level. And and they wouldn't have to leave the promised land. It would get so terrible, the Romans would leave. This is The anticipation was, if Jesus is this guy, then it's time the the Romans have to go. Because Moses delivered from the oppressors, this Messiah must deliver us from all oppressors and all suffering. And so these were the expectation. The common expectation was this prophet would be something, someone who would deliver them from their troubles. Here's the problem with that theologically. Number one. Their answer was theological. These were good Jewish people. They had been to synagogue. They knew, their, they knew their Bible. How many of us, when we're thinking about prophets of Old Testament, quickly turn to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15? That, this crowd didn't have to turn there. They would have had it memorized because this was their hope. So one of the problems is their misunderstanding of the Messiah was profoundly theological. It wasn't right, but they thought they were getting it right, and they weren't. They thought the Old uh, Testament prophet would rise from the dead and deliver them from their oppressor. Would the Messiah deliver them from their oppressor? Yes. What's the oppressor? Sin and death. Great. That helps a lot. What about Rome? They're not a problem. If you've been delivered from sin and death, Rome isn't your biggest problem. So they made a, some theological mistakes. They assumed that Messiah must be a deliverer politically, socially, and physically. That's one mistake they made. The second mistake they made is they assumed that Messiah was merely a man. Jesus is fully man, but he is also fully God. So for the people of Israel to say Jesus is merely Elijah... Completely misunderstands. Elijah's not standing here. Who's standing here? God is standing here. So while you and, I may, you and I might take it as a profound compliment that we would be compared to Elijah or Moses, Jesus says, what are you talking about? I made those guys. For Jesus, it's a slight. It's a, it's a misunderstanding. This is God in the flesh. This is the God-man, the Messiah. And the crowd has misunderstood who Jesus is. The journey of Jesus was unexpected because the people of Israel, the crowd, expected another guy to show up to deliver them from their physical, social, and political problems. Another guy didn't show up. God showed up, and he came to deliver them from something more important than their physical, social, and political problems. The journey of Jesus was unexpected. Let's keep going. Let's see how the disciples answer in verse 20. Peter answers. or Jesus asked, he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, we should understand Peter here is speaking for all the disciples, save Judas. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. You're the Messiah sent from God himself. And we have to contrast this with how the crowds answered. While Peter's answer here is not comprehensive, and Peter has a lot to learn about Jesus, this is a genuine recognition that Jesus is the Messiah, from God. And this is a much uh, larger view of of who Jesus is than the the crowds were, because Jesus uh, affirms this, that his view of Jesus is bigger than what the crowds were thinking. The disciples trust that Jesus is from God. He's the chosen one, the Messiah. Their faith is in him, that he is the one who brings salvation. While the crowd minimizes Jesus, the disciples are growing in their understanding of who Jesus is. They're not home yet, and they have a lot to learn as we're going to work through our way through the book of Luke, but this is a very expansive view of the Messiah. No, you're bigger than just here to save us from Rome. You've got, you're from God. You're, the, you're a big deal. Would, would uh, Peter acknowledge that Jesus is God in the flesh? I don't know if he's there yet. But later he will, for sure. But he is, uh, has a profound view of Jesus in this case, saying, No, you are sent from God. You are our only hope. You are our hope. Much bigger view of Jesus than merely a political savior. Verse 21 to 22 Jesus strictly, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. This is how we know. Peter's view of Jesus is much grander than the crowd's view. Jesus knew the crowd wasn't ready for this view of him yet. He was going to die on the cross at a certain point, and if Peter disclosed to the crowd who Jesus was, they may have killed him right there on the spot, as though Jesus would have let that happen. He said, don't tell anyone this yet. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed... And on the third day, be raised. So Jesus understands that the Messiah for his disciples is, has all kinds of baggage attached to it. We're going to learn this later as we work our way through the book of Luke. Later on, a couple of the disciples are going to ask Jesus, Hey, um, when you come into your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right and the other guy on your left? And Jesus says, um, yeah, can you drink the cup? I'm going to drink And you know, How do they answer? Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. And his answer? Well, you're going to. But those seats are for who they're going to get. I don't know. That's for the father to figure out. So they're, they're thinking the baggage is he's the Messiah, but, but we, wanna, we, we don't want to experience the Messiah merely for who he is. We want a relationship with the Messiah for what he, he can do for us. What is the glory we can gain? They're always having arguments with one another. At least on two occasions, they're arguing who is the greatest among them. This is like, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm going to get in trouble. Here we go. It's like the three stooges arguing who's the greatest stooge. I mean, this is not, that's, that's how it seems to me. They're sitting around Jesus, maybe 12 to 18 hours before he's going to hang on the cross, and they're arguing over who's the greatest. It's because they've misunderstood what the Messiah is up to. So Jesus begins here to cut away the baggage they've connected with who he is. They want a Messiah that they can ride his coattails into into glory. And that's going to happen, but Jesus wants them to understand the journey between here and glory is not what you expect. How does he describe it? The Son of Man must suffer many things. First thing about this journey from Jesus is it's a road of suffering. Secondly, he has to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, disciples. All the people that you are hoping will be impressed by you because you are with me, they are going to kill me. All the people you are hoping will be impressed will not be. So, first, the road is suffering. Second, your reputation will be ruined in the eyes of those whose view matters most. So, if you want a road to glory, it starts with suffering and having your reputation ruined by being associated with me. Finally, they are going to kill me. We might say it this way Jesus will die at their hands, although his death is completely voluntary. So, this is what he said. This is the journey. The journey to glory is a road of suffering, ruined reputation, and death. The hope comes at the destination, which is resurrection. That's what he says. On the third day, Jesus says, I will be raised. He cuts away all the baggage, saying, No, here's the road I'm on. We're not going to take the airplane to the journey to glory, we're going to take the long road through suffering, ruined reputation, and even death. And that's the avenue to glory. This is the journey of Jesus, and this is completely unexpected for the disciples. For the crowds, they don't even have category for it. For the crowds, they assume now is the time. Jesus is here, or the Messiah is here. So now he's going to get rid of the Romans, and all our problems are going to be solved. And the disciples maybe have a little better view, but they're hoping that maybe it doesn't involve suffering. And and Jesus says, here is the journey. The journey is through suffering and ruined reputation and finally death, and then glory. And then glory comes. You can write down Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. Jesus' journey is described by the Apostle Paul there, and you can read that on your own if you don't have it memorized. I don't know if you've ever had a crisis of faith. If you have... You'll probably have more, so look forward to that. If you haven't, you will soon enough. It's a part of walking with Christ. There are lots of reasons we have a crisis of faith, but this particular passage provides us an opportunity to think about one way in which we have a crisis of faith. It's this, when God does exactly what He said in a way we didn't expect. When God does exactly what He said He would do in a way we didn't expect, or worse, in a way we didn't want. Lord, work is very stressful. My boss is a, well, I can't say that while praying, you know what I'm talking about. Lord, I just uh, would pray that you would make a way for that to be figured out. I don't know how that would happen show up Monday morning with all the hope in the world. Anybody had that prayed this prayer before? Some of you prayed it this morning? That this isn't going to help. So you walk in, and they say, by the way, sales are down. We're cutting 10%. You're one of them. You're done. Uh, now, Lord, I asked you to relieve the stress of work. I didn't ask you to relieve me of it. As I was praying that prayer, I assumed you would smite my boss. That, that, that's how I assumed. I didn't I didn't think you would fire me. So, so God actually answered your prayer. Now, we must not think that God is impetuous, just looking for ways uh, like a really mean Aladdin. You know, every time we make a wish, he's looking for ways to fulfill it in ways that are annoying. That's not how God operates. However, a crisis of faith occurs when God does precisely what he said he was going to do, and we don't like how he's doing it. It's in that moment, and it, it's going to happen a lot. It's in that moment when we go, oh God, you're going you're to do it this way. See, in that moment, we get to decide, am I going to trust him and worship him with love and affection even in this? Or do I only want God who does things my way? And if you only want God who does things your way, welcome to the club, that's normal. The problem is that would make you God None of us want you to be God. If God always does things the way you want them, he's not God, you are. And one of the things that God is going to continue to do with us as we journey down this unexpected road with him is remind us, I'm not here to try and meet your expectations. I'm here to draw you to the destination of my son, which is glory in him. This is what the disciples are going to begin to struggle with here, and it's going to get harder and harder as the uh, time goes by, as they get closer to the cross. It's going to culminate on the night of the cross with all of them abandoning him because it, it became too much. Oh, you're going to do it this way? We thought you were kidding. We thought you were being figurative about the cross. When God does exactly what he said he would do in a way we didn't expect or want, it's in that moment that we can worship him by saying, you're God, I'm not, your will be done, Lord, not mine. Give me the strength, the faith to endure even in this. The journey of Jesus was unexpected for the crowds, was unexpected for the disciples, and we do something really profound by the Spirit in our own heart when we acknowledge the journey Jesus has us on with him also doesn't meet our expectations, and that's an opportunity for faith and worship. The journey of Jesus is unexpected. As tough as that would be for the disciples to hear and understand that you know, Jesus is here to do unexpected things, it's about to get worse. He makes it clear to his disciples that to follow him, we walk the same path that he does. So if the journey of Jesus is unexpected, the journey of Jesus is our journey also. Look at verse 23 if anyone will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me i have a terrible illustration so i'm going to give it to you but it's what i got are you ready i like to lay the expectations really low so if you enjoy it and if it's helpful then i beat expectations have you ever been to one of those water parks where you got the lazy river thing you know what i'm talking about you jump on an inner tube, and this river goes in a loop. Usually it meanders, but it, it, it never stops going. They've got a sophisticated pump system that keeps the current going round and round, and you uh, sit on the inner tube, and then your kids or your grandkids or your nephews or nieces, hey, come ride this giant scary ride. You're like, why would you want to do anything? besides so sit on this inner tube. I've got a cold beverage in my hand. I'm sitting on an inner tube. I want this to never stop, okay? So the guy in the inner tube is next to you. He's got a cold beverage, and he's also sitting on his inner tube, and you're going down the lazy rivers, they call it, because you're being lazy. I call it occasional Sabbath, but we can call it lazy. <laughs> the marketing folks didn't like the occasional Sabbath river name, so they went lazy river. And he says, you know what would be good? Cold beverage, lazy river. You know what would be really good? I know what you guys are thinking. Nachos. <laughs> if we had we had nachos. And so he jumps out of his inner tube to make his way to the snack shack. And he says, come, follow me. I will make you a person who has nachos. So now you're going to follow. Please stay with me. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to follow. Because in that moment you go, cold drink, inner tube, lazy river. Nachos are perfect. That's it. How did he know? How did he know what I needed in this moment? So you jump out of your tube and you follow him the wrong way up the lazy river. And what do you suddenly realize? When you're on the inner tube, it doesn't seem like that water is moving very fast, does it? And now that you're walking against it, nachos don't seem so great. Like, well, no, 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 now this is a lot of work. I thought you were going to just give me nachos. And now you're you're walking upstream, and not only that, other people who are still perfectly content on their inner tubes continue to fly past you, and you're walking the wrong way, and the whole thing seems like work. I never thought it would be this hard. I thought he had all the answers. I thought everything was going to be fine. But as soon as I jumped out of the tube and started following him, everything was hard. And Jesus wants us to understand If we're going to follow Him, we're going to be on the same road He's walking. And if we think it's going to be the easy road, the easy road's coming. What do we call that? Heaven. We're not there yet. Yes, Southern Oregon is great. It's not heaven. And until we get there, the journey of Jesus, that unexpected journey of suffering, loss of reputation, finally death is our journey too. A proper understanding of Jesus' ministry changes our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. John paved the way. Jesus paid the way. We walk that way too. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily and take up his cross daily and follow me. A lot of times we talk about inviting Jesus into our life and inviting Jesus into our heart, and that's a proper way of thinking about it when we're trying to describe a heart that is yielded to the things of God, especially faith in Christ for salvation. But it's improper to think of ourselves as the initiating force in our relationship with God. The initiator, the inviter, is Jesus. He invites us into relationship with him, and he calls us into this epic journey that he is on. That's what he calls us into. He calls us into relationship with him by faith, where we're now going to engage in his path with him. Look at how he describes this path in verse 23. There's three words to focus uh, on. Are you ready? Deny himself. There's one element of the path that Jesus takes. The journey of Jesus Is our journey too? First element, deny himself. Second one, what is it? Take up his cross daily. Finally, what's the last one? Follow me. So he's calling us by faith to to respond to his invitation for salvation, yes, but Even so, to walk with Jesus in salvation is to walk this journey, the journey of Jesus, which is denying himself, that's what Jesus did, take up a cross, that's what Jesus did, follow Jesus. That's the path we're on. To submit to Christ by denying ourselves. That means when we are tempted to sin, we say, I will deny my own appetites and instead worship Christ by saying no to sin. That's what it, to deny myself, to deny seeking my own satisfaction through sin or seeking my own satisfaction, rather than doing that, I'm going to seek the well-being of others by serving them, to say no to sin and say yes to humble service to others. Take up uh, a cross daily, which is to say my life will be characterized by personal sacrifice relationally financially in my time my my life will be redefined not as seeking personal ambition rather my life will be redefined and characterized by sacrifice especially in relationship with the people god has put into my life follow jesus to to walk with jesus the fancy theological term we use is sanctified that is Becoming more like Jesus over the course of time. I don't want to be too annoying today, but it's my spiritual gift, so what are you going to do? (laughs) We look, oftentimes, it's, it's sort of a construct of the modern mind. We say you get saved, and then you follow Jesus. The first and second century believer would have never separated those into two different categories. If somebody says, I want to get saved, and I'm not sure if I'm going to follow Jesus, the answer would have been, you don't want to get saved. To be saved is to follow Jesus. That's the assumption is those two things go together, and that's how Jesus is framing it here. To put faith in Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, the assumption is you want to jump on the journey with him. If you don't want to walk the path of Jesus, you don't want Jesus. If you don't want Jesus, you don't want heaven because that's all there is. The whole thing is all about Jesus. Every square inch of heaven is all Jesus, all the time. So Jesus here says, here's what it looks like to walk with me. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. You say, well, gee, that could could get old after a little while. Anybody agree that could get old after a little while? Yes, you're human. Of course that gets old. It also requires I have to trust Jesus to meet my needs, doesn't mean my needs go away. It means my faith then is to trust that Jesus will provide what's needed. Verses 24 and 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Two options here. Keep your current life. Save your skin. Stay on the inner tube with your cold beverage. Don't go upstream with Jesus and you lose your life. You've gained nothing. You have gained this world and this life and that alone. To follow Jesus is to abandon my own purposes and assume there is greater profit in following Jesus than there is to be gained here. Jesus is asking us to do the math and to see where the greater return is. What can be gained in this world? The whole world is all you can gain. If you look at some of the wealthiest people who have ever lived, uh, there's a couple of trillionaires. You have to adjust it for inflation, but one of them is Genghis Khan. I wouldn't have guessed that. Uh, I think he got into Bitcoin early. Um, Really early. Yeah. Uh, You know, he owned a certain percentage of the globe. So there's a number of people. I think uh, Rockefeller, one of the Rockefellers was somewhere around... Uh, three, quarters of a billion, uh, three quarters of a trillion dollars adjusted for inflation. That's a lot of money. So, so is there nothing to gain in this world? Of course, there's massive things to gain in this world. There is financial gain. There is relational gain. There is a pleasure to be enjoyed. There is influence to be had, power to wield. There's a, this entire planet. It's like it was designed for our enjoyment. It's almost like God was thinking of us when he made it. All you can gain is this world, though. And what he's saying is, do the math. When you die and the gain is gone, have you been profitable? And the answer is no. It is more profitable to be willing in this world to lose it all, knowing that I have gained my life in Christ for all eternity. That's the more profitable solution. What does that mean, though? It means I trust him in that, and I'm willing to walk that journey with him in this life, knowing that it's characterized by denying myself, taking up my cross daily, and following him on the path that he has for us. A person has to make a decision by faith. Do I want everything this world has to offer, or do I want Jesus? Look at verse 26. Close with this. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is not passive on rejecting him. So if you decide Jesus is not for you, we must understand Jesus is not passive on that, He's not, okay, well, I appreciate you weighing out the options. I've got other followers, so I'm good. Jesus is not passive. We must remember, Jesus is not merely Elijah. He is not merely Moses raised from the dead or merely John the Baptist. He is the creator of the universe. Everything that exists belongs to him. And for his creation to reject him is for his creation to receive on themselves the just wrath of God for rejecting the Lamb of God. Keeping in mind, to reject Jesus is not merely to reject God. To reject Jesus is to reject God who died for you. And Jesus is not passive on that. If you wonder if Jesus is passive on being rejected, read the book of Revelation where Jesus finally, when all of time has stopped and the time for waiting and gracious uh, delay has ended, and now judgment comes for those who would reject the Lamb of God. So it's not like we get two options. Well, I can reject Jesus, and that's fine. No. He says, listen, whoever is ashamed of me on that day, on the day of the Lord where he comes and returns, he will say, I never knew you. You, you made your choice, and you have your choice. You have rejected the Lamb of God, and on that great day, judgment will be had. Verse 27, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus made it quite clear that the end of things has begun. He's described this a number of different ways. He said there will be wars, and there will be rumors of wars. Do we have any of that? Yeah, there will be famines. We got any of that? Yeah, we do. There are going to be earthquakes. We got a few of those we got pestilences. Uh, You know, we have social media. That's something that wasn't in there, but it's. we have to put that in there. What he is saying is all these things begin happening, and and there would be those who would see into what is coming, and we see a number of of profound examples of that. We have just in uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the transfiguration where some of the disciples saw Jesus in his glory with Moses and Elijah. Then we're going to have uh, Stephen. Just as he's being martyred in Acts chapter 7, he has a vision of heaven with Christ standing at the right hand of the throne of God, has this vision into the future, has this vision into where we're going. We have the Apostle Paul in in Acts chapter 9, where he is saved with a profound vision of the risen Christ, and then later, after he is stoned in Lystra, he has a a vision of heaven. And in fact, says to those as he's writing about that experience, I'm not going to tell you what I saw. Then you've got the Apostle John, very old, 96, 97 years old, writing down for us what he saw of the future glory in the book of Revelation. So Jesus is saying, the end has, is coming, and it's already starting to come, and some will not even taste death before they get hints of it, but when the day actually comes, Jesus makes clear, no, make no mistake, there will be no confusing it. The journey of Jesus was unexpected for the crowds. The journey of Jesus was unexpected for the disciples. The journey of Jesus is our, our journey too. The road to glory in Christ is by trusting him for salvation and the understanding that means I get to walk his path with him. That lazy river with the current against us. So if you're one of those believers like many of us, you say, well, I thought following Jesus was going to be a little bit easier than it is. Well, it always seems easy when you're sitting on the inner tube. But when you jump in and start to walk the path, that's when you notice what the current is like. Jesus says, follow me. We know where the road goes. A couple of things, and, uh, and then we'll close with a song. I don't know if you've ever thought this. Uh, you know, I like to share with you things I struggle with in case you haven't, so that way you will from going forward. I thought Jesus would, I don't know what's in that blank for you. You know, I thought, you know, I thought this was where this was going. You ever thought that? And he hasn't. Maybe he hasn't done it yet, or he's never going to. I don't know. I thought Jesus would, and he hasn't. The question is, in that, that moment of crisis, which is what that is, will you accept what Jesus is doing, what Jesus has been doing, Or will you only follow Jesus if he does what you want him to do? And as a Christian, we need to come to terms with that. Now, by God's grace, the Lord gives us profound blessing in our life, doesn't he? I mean, we have more things and more blessings in our life than we deserve. But when it comes right down to it, walking the path that Jesus walked with him, am I going to to only accept Jesus if he does what I expect him to do, or... Am I going to follow Jesus no matter what he brings my way? Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus, and I want to ask you a couple of questions to think through about who you think Jesus is. So here's a couple of ways people have described Jesus. Jesus is a good luck charm. Uh, the modern-day equivalent of that is what we call karma. Jesus is a good luck charm. Jesus is a teddy bear. He makes me feel Good When I feel sad, Jesus is warm and fuzzy, inspirational. Some of the stuff Jesus says are really handy to put up on Instagram. You have to, maybe you don't know how the Instagram works, but you got to take a picture of a cup of coffee and an open Bible in a coffee shop. But, yeah, you know, that's how that works. Jesus is a good luck charm. If I pray enough to Jesus, he can make my life go better. Jesus is a teddy bear when I'm sad. I can read some jesus stuff And I'll feel less sad. Jesus is inspirational when I need to be motivated to be my best at work or in my home or whatever I'm doing. Then Jesus inspires me to be my best. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He saves sinners from death and raises them from the dead. That's what Jesus does. He is God in the flesh, Messiah, King of the universe. If you want salvation from your sin, if you want forgiveness, if you want to live forever in beautiful relationship with Christ and those who are with him, you need forgiveness. And the good news is this. Jesus gives it to all who seek him by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, close with this verse. Here's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You may have these verses memorized. I don't know. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, you legalist. Okay, I added that. (laughs) It's not a result of works, so no one can boast. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What do we call that? The journey of Jesus. See, even Paul here in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 cannot separate salvation from the path of Jesus because the two are connected. Don't be surprised in walking with Christ, walking upstream at how challenging it can be. Don't be surprised at the trials of life. We're not home yet. We walk Jesus' path, and we walk it with him. And what's what's beautiful about that, actually, is it's that path that makes us most like Jesus. And there will be a day of glory to look forward to. Jesus, we thank you for your salvation that you have given us. God, we thank you for who you are, that you have saved sinners like us in the way you saved us by dying on the cross and raising from the dead. God, those of us who have walked with you for a day or two or a decade or two have to admit that along the way we've had some questions where we've wondered, really, God, this is how it's going to be? God, we ask by your grace in those moments you would give us strength to worship you even when it isn't what we expect it to be like. More than that, God, would you give us joy in on purpose walking the road that Jesus walked, having our lives marked with a willingness to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily with voluntary, on purpose, personal sacrifice to serve others and to be obedient to you, that we would be those who are known as Jesus followers. God, I pray for those who are here today who don't know you, that you would give them by your Holy Spirit a conviction of their sin and their need for salvation. But more than that, Lord, that you are providing more than just heaven. You are providing an opportunity for us to walk the path of Jesus that you are calling us into an epic journey to be changed, to be more like our Savior. I pray in this moment, those who don't know you would reach out to you by faith for forgiveness. God, I would pray for those who are in the midst of significant trial and difficulty, that you would give them the hope of Christ even now and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.